as, as long as you keep that, as long as it's secret, you know, you're going to suffer for another day and another day. The moment that you come clean and you shine a light on it, it has nowhere left to hide. A lesson that addicts have learned, needed to learn in order to get sober, that can benefit the wider world. But certainly things that are showing up in your children's lives and things that they're struggling with are indicators of what's happening in our lives. If there isn't, if there isn't redemption for everyone, if there isn't a redemption card that we all get to play in this game, then I want out. And that the shame is holding us back from seeking out the help. In many available. cases, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Many, many cases. Yeah, the three hardest words in the English word to say. I need your help. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more. More from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, here we are. I'm sitting here with Rav Schneer Kaplan. Ali, it's a pleasure. Welcome. So I don't know if you remember, but when this thing started, whatever this thing is, we're still in search of what it is. We just know that it's more. Um, I think you were my first phone call. I think so. Do you remember? So right after COVID started, right after COVID was made up, I'm not going to wait into this stuff. Right. Right after COVID, right, March of 2020, um, we, I had this idea that, uh, which I think is probably something we've, an idea we've shared, we've shared before, is that there's a, a lesson that addicts have learned, needed to learn in order to get sober, that can benefit the wider world. So I reached out to you and I said, I'm interested in doing this discussion. A lot of people are sitting home and we, um, we invited a few others afterwards, and it was called Let Go and Let God. Remember yes. Yeah. So that's where this thing started. That's I wasn't ready for it yet. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for it now, but at some point you can't ignore the calling. So I show up and I say, wherever it goes, it goes. Right? So we'll find out where this will We have off. a good editing thing. <laughs> but uh, but you have always talked about the importance of... We have a terrible editing team here. Huh? Right? Do we you? Okay. I've, we've had segments... Where I, I said, okay, so we'll edit this thing out that ended up going live. Ended up going live. <laughs> All right. So, but that's also the hand of God and everything. Yes. The, the divine providence. But I know that. Uh, and I'm not afraid to say that because yeah. they probably won't even know, hear me say it. Yeah, I'm not offending them because a, they we, won't even they'll see it. They'll cut it out. If it's about them, <laughs> no, they'll they make sure oh, it's not in no, it. Yeah. <laughs> the editing team will make sure to take it out. But, but, um, and, I'm kidding. and the I don't want to go amazing. too fast, but I know that um, our meeting really is very much connected to the idea of sharing stories. Because soon after we met, I don't remember what year it was, but it was many years ago. But soon after we met, uh, you had shared your story for the first time in Miami. Right. It was soon after we met. Right. And you... Somehow I was part of that, either encouraging you or maybe I didn't say you anything. Spoke there. But I did speak there. Yeah. Because there wasn't, uh, you could not find any rabbi who would... Okay, right. So let's let's put their put their name on it. Right. So so really, our meeting had very much to do with the idea of sharing a story, and somehow you were convinced. And I don't know if it was back then or it evolved over time, but you were absolutely convinced that you had to share your story because you felt that it was very important for other people to hear that they could perhaps find Mm -hmm. their healing because you didn't need you weren't exposing anyone. You didn't need to share it for any of those reasons. But I think you felt very, very strongly that you would become a source of inspiration for other people by sharing your story. And that's why you did it. Right. So I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened, what, what was going on by me at that time. So in terms of meeting, your father was my Rosh Hashiva in Montreal. Yeah. And we stayed connected a little bit, a little bit. 
And he told me about the son he has down in... In Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> in Fort Lauderdale. So at some point we met, and then... I actually met him with you. My father had come to Florida, and he was going to meet with you. I had never met you before. And he said, no, Vils Kuman, you want to come with me? We're going to go meet Ellie. So I said, oh, okay, fine. I don't know if you remember this, but before I left, my father must have said, you know, you guys should learn together. And I said, Ellie, we should learn together. And you looked at me like, uh, you know, every, every Chabad rabbi and his brother, Ellie, let's learn. You were like, yeah, yeah, sure. Reach out to me. Let's, you know, you were probably thinking I wouldn't reach out. And I didn't for a little bit. And then I did. And that's how. Uh, right. We started. Right, we started that's how we started our learning on our own. Then I do remember that shortly after I entered recovery, I was over by your house for Shabbos and we had a practice of trading books. We did. So you gave me a few books. I gave you a few books. And one of the books you gave me was God of Our Understanding, Shays Taub. But at the time, I had not said to you that I was in recovery. That it was still something I was keeping uh, right. tight-lipped. And it was very... Um, the timing was perfect. The timing was perfect for that, <laughs> for that book. And, you know, obviously now I've gotten to know Shays well. Shays has uh, sat where you're sitting. Gewald. So. He's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I don't even know how I got that book. I can't remember what I was doing with that book. There are components of our story and my story <laughs> that, that have not been revealed yet. But um, somehow that book was in my possession. And I was also keeping a lot, and perhaps still am, keeping a lot about you know where I was and what I was struggling with and where I was in my life. So maybe we're jumping ahead, but I know that you were sitting at my table thinking about how I ended up here and the significance of it, and I was actually thinking the same thing from a completely <laughs> different, right. different space. Yeah, even though you were yeah. in Florida, right, in Fort Lauderdale, I, I don't know, there aren't too many other rabbis that I've gotten to know that I went to their house for right. for showers. If they're in my immediate community, maybe, but this was you know going out to, uh, to Fort Lauderdale. So anyways, we got to know each other, a yeah. friendship developed. At some point, um, I decided to share my story. The motivation to share my story was that I felt like I had a very unique experience. After I confronted the guy who abused me, it changed my whole perspective of people who abuse children. There was not, not to say they don't exist, but this guy, I dehumanized him. I turned him into a monster. But when I sat together with him and we put the past where it belongs in the past, it humanized him in some way. I was like, wow, the guy's not a monster. You know, one of the things that happened in it was, it took me a long time, and I have a talk on YouTube called uh, Secrets for Jewish Community Watch, where I go into the whole story of, of where I confronted him, if anyone's interested in that story. But when I eventually confronted him, which took four years, it was me, him, and a therapist, and he wasn't comfortable. It was, you know, it took a little strong arming from JCW to get him to sit down with me. But over the course of the interaction, as I started spelling out some of the things he did, which he had blocked out, he remembered a lot, but he also blocked out a lot. He was a teenager um, at the time of the abuse, and it went on for several years. So there was a lot of memories, but he distorted them in some way, I think. But as I confronted him with it, either he remembered or he realized that he couldn't hide from it, and he started shaking. Almost had, not almost, he had a very difficult time catching his breath, and he turned to the therapist at that point. And he said, um, am I a monster? Can I go back home to my kids? And I left. I, it was so intense that I said to the doctor, maybe you'll take care of him. I'll step outside. Right. So I stepped out for about a half hour while the, you know, while the therapist calmed him down. And the thought that was going through my head was a monster would never ask that question. A monster would never care 
You know, like a true racist would not be offended by the by calling them a racist. racist. You if you Hitler, confronted them, right? If you told Hitler he's a racist, he's like, oh, "Thank you so much for recognizing right. my whole right." Like this is a foundational belief. Yeah, I think everyone should everyone should be there's or, a or racist. Or at the way. least to to deny it. You know, in this case, right? To but to be worried about it, meaning the question came from somewhere so deep inside him, he was shaking, he couldn't breathe. There was a physiological response that he couldn't. Um, manufacturer, not even an actor, a very good actor could do this. He literally could not catch his breath. And the question that finally emerged after struggling for 45 seconds or a minute was, am I a monster? Can I go back home to my kids? Like, obviously, obviously not, right? Obviously, he's not a monster. Obviously, the answer is, obviously the answer is no. So that kind of shifted something. And I felt like I had a very unique experience, one that probably most people never get to reconcile with the person who sexually abused them. Most people who are sexually abused. And I just thought I like I tasted a, a like a piece of cake of life that almost no one's ever tasted before, and I just had to share it. And that's where that I don't, it wasn't even so much helping people. It was kind of the same thing that encouraged me to get in the ice bath before right. we started this. I was like, <laughs> yes, this by is the way, we did just get into an ice bath, or did just come out of an ice bath. Right. But I, but I very interesting that you had shared something publicly. And you had shared it with me, and it's something that I have repeated a number of times. You know, I was somewhat involved with JCW at that point because of you, and of course that event was hosted by JCW, mm -hmm. and they facilitated your meeting. But what was interesting, interesting, um, you did not feel that the name of your abuser should be on that wall. And a number of people confronted you about that because on the one hand, you're supporting JCW and one of the things that they were doing in order to protect potentially other mm -hmm. children, other victims from monsters that are still out there was to put people on the wall of shame, to give them the opportunity to, to come clean, to give them the opportunity to get the proper help. But if not, you expose them. And you had said that because of your interaction with your abuser, you said there was no need to put him on the wall because you really believed that he was no longer a threat because of what you had experienced with him. So I remember that, and that was, you know, incredibly, um, incredibly powerful as well. Well, I think in those, the, there were very few people who were exposed by JCW. Very few. There were a number of people who were put on the wall of shame, who were arrested, and then we shared that information. So maybe it wouldn't have been known and. Israel that some guy was arrested in a little town in New Jersey so some of that was exposing you know information making it more relevant sharing it with relevant communities but there were very few people who JCW actually exposed for for the first time and without going into all the detail because it wouldn't be appropriate on what went into those things and how those decisions came about certainly they were never made by uh, one person either right. Mayor Seawald or me that wasn't the way decisions um, were made but I didn't even volunteer for this to be the case because it's not about punishing anyone we're not in a place to it's not our job to to hand out punishments it was simply if there's the risk that would someone would go out and reoffend, but not a risk everyone is somewhat of a risk right? how do we know but there's like an active danger kind of risk how can you not expose it so in this case he did everything i'd asked and then there were also people which knew it wasn't a hundred percent protected his Family knew, his wife knew, his boss knew, his uh, rabbi knew. So there was enough there that if there were enough people around him which knew that if there was something going on, um, 
it could have been repeated. It, 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 they, they, had they cared to, there would have been enough smoke to, for them to do something with it. So it wasn't zero, zero, zero. No one found out about right. it, but it definitely didn't, in my case, didn't need to be. But there's another thing also, um, is that he was a teenager when he abused me. And I think there is a difference between, um, between a teenager who abuses a child and an adult who abuses a child. From the child's experience, it's the same. Like, what's the difference who's on the other end of a rocket that hits someone? Right. No difference. Could have been a grown man or it could have been a, a teenager who didn't know what he was doing. It's still the same, right? The pain is the same. But from that person's perspective, it's likely that a teenager was going through a phase and now is not in that place. Whereas if someone was in their 30s, it's unlikely that a 30-year-old was going through a phase, you know? Right. Chances are they're still, they're still doing it. Yeah, and maybe this is an opportunity to share a message because it's come up for me. Um, a few different people have reached out to me in the last several months about this, is that they as children touched a sibling or a cousin or something like that. And they're wondering today, like, are they, are they a monster? Are they a terrible person? And um, what I've shared, what I've shared with people who are really struggling, racked by guilt, you know, 10-year-old boy, you touched his 6-year-old sister, so, you know, sometimes, a, a, sometimes females who touched um, a younger brother or a younger cousin or a younger sister. I'm thinking of a few examples and just feeling horrible, like racked with guilt and shame today. And uh, the message that I gave to them is, you know, as far as what was done as a child says very little about who you are today as a person. I'm 11, 12 years old. Which other wrong would you hold so, Right. you know, if you beat someone up in school, would you be like, oh my goodness, I'm such a terrible person? So most likely, if someone is feeling that way, they're just absorbing uh, a general message of sexual shame. That, you know, sexual shame around sexuality um, in a very heightened way that we wouldn't say the same about anything else. That being said, it's not a pass. It's not a free pass. What I say is that the fact of the matter is there's probably someone sitting there struggling today, right? Whoever was on the other end of that, like in my case, I was struggling. And as an adult, this little prison that I was in, in order for me to get out of it, either I had to break out of it or this guy who abused me could just open the door and I can walk out peacefully. So it's kind of insensitive if he can help me out in that way, then as an adult, more than insensitive, it's insensitive, it's inconsiderate that him as an This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. 
Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Adult would not do that for me. Like, why do I have to work for five years, 10 years in really difficult therapy to get out the door when all you have to do is sit with me and you can resolve so much? Now the door's open and now I can walk right out of prison. So that's that's what I usually share with people is don't beat yourself up for what was done as a kid. It's not a... And I know from speaking to clinicians um, about this particular mm. issue, you know, people who had acted out when they were younger, whether it was with siblings or with others and so on, and today they're carrying a lot of that guilt. And remember that many of us, I'm talking about you and I, who grew up in from observant, you know, Hasidic communities and there are taboos about sexuality, there are taboos about your own sexuality, there are taboos about, you know, expressing masturbation and so on. So there's a lot of, you know, added layers of of guilt and shame that are associated with it. But I know from a clinician's perspective, it is, I don't know what the statistics are and so on, but it is perfectly natural for children during those, during adolescence to experiment. And oftentimes they will experiment with you know, what's most accessible to them. It could be a sibling or a cousin or friends and so on. And that doesn't necessarily, you know, it's like, you know, people who, uh, you know, a same-sex interaction doesn't mean that you're gay or Correct. lesbian. Um, you're just exploring stuff. You're learning your own, you know, sexuality. So there's, you know, that component of it. But also, just to add a little something to what you're sharing, you said, you know, had he reached out to you sooner or you reaching out to your I don't abuser, think actually- Actually, I don't think yeah. he should have reached out to me. I think it would be inappropriate to for reach to out to that. someone because maybe it's a I memory. Think about, I think about the conditions of the fourth step. So I think about somebody, for example, you know, years later who's carrying some of the shame, some of the guilt of something that he did. Now, you, you mean know, the eighth step? Uh, the eighth step. I'm talking about making amends. Right. So right. Step yeah. eight. So, but the question becomes: Let's say, you know, if I, you know, acted out with someone, and it's years later, right, and we were children. And I don't know where that person is. I don't know if they blocked it out. I don't know. It would be inappropriate to reach out. Right. It would be inappropriate. Correct. Yes. But that wasn't the case. I was chasing this guy down for four years. Right. Right. No. So I understand that. But I'm only asking because you mentioned the idea that people don't have to carry that kind of shame and guilt. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have license to reach out no. to someone. You, you need to do this no, I'm in glad a you clarified. You know, no, they controlled reach setting. Out. They should talk to a therapist about it, and, and it should be done very delicately. But they, often, they probably should not reach out. Right, they shouldn't reach they out. They shouldn't reach out. Right. It's more of the other way. If the person reaches out to, to them, they should to respond. To them, then respond. Right. And sometimes you can do things on, a, you know, like in, in, in the 12 steps. What does it say? Um, step eight made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, right? right? So first, step eight sits there and says, I am willing to make right by all the people in, in my life. So in that, in that step, one would imagine, let's say, right? Prepare themselves to be fully willing to... Come clean. Come clean. Step nine says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So step nine, we say, 
Step eight is the willingness to, which is an actual step. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a step. <laughs> right. right? So it's actual something that's being done. And step nine is saying, where it's not going to injure them or others, then go make it directly. Otherwise, make it indirectly. Right. So You were willing to do it. That's already a whole step. Exactly. Whether you have to go out and do it, there are certain conditions. Correct. Right. Yeah. And I can... Um, I can... I, there was one person that I made a indirect amends to, right? Where what I did was I wrote a letter. I read it to my sponsor. My sponsor encouraged me to burn it. And this was um, an amends to someone I had dated. Um, but now we're both married. And it would be completely inappropriate right. for me to uh, to reach out to her. But you still had to I be say, ready hey, I was a to make bit... amends and do something. I did it. Which your sponsor had you do. Right, which I did. As and if I you went through the steps. Them, yeah. yeah. And I apologized that I was, you know, I wasn't faithful during our, uh, when we were dating. I, I hurt her in many ways. I wasn't, you right. know, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't of sound mind. <laughs> right. So in other words, what you're sharing for people. And, but I'll, t- I'll tell yeah. you what happened there. This, I made an amends for something that had happened 15 years earlier. 15 years earlier. I did this with my sponsor. I can't tell you how it happened. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you if it's a freak accident. Within less than a month, this woman's husband called me and said, I have a strange request for you. Uh, my wife wants to know if you'd be willing to sit down with her. Wow. True story. Unsolicited nothing. From nowhere. From nowhere. And comes and you know, asks me this question, and I made this amends. I mean, like... There were fifteen years that had, there were fifteen years that had passed. So did something, did something happen, right? For, for people who think I'm crazy, sharing something like this, understand I'm wearing one of these things, right? And we're doing a lot of different stuff because we believe that our actions have some sort of spiritual or energetic pulse to it. There's a difference between the kind of food we eat. There's a different, you know, that the things we do here affect something there's somewhere the, else where we can't touch and there's see. No question. And this I experienced. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this. the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe writes in the beginning of uh, Lakuti Diborum in the first section, the idea of Machshava Mayelas, that thinking about someone actually has incredible power. You can you can move things or people just by, by thinking your, about them, by intention. Yeah. So this was that. So this was even more than. Just you got a gift. You got a gift. Right. So that's the message I would send to someone is if they did something as a child, like don't don't beat yourself up over it. The same thing. You said these same sex interactions as a child. Say nothing about someone's sexuality. And a lot of people go back, you know, it's only for sex that we'll do these things, but they go back right. and they say, like, you know, Not oh my goodness, Hara, am though. I? Not for the Lush and <laughs> right. we spoke. <laughs> right. right. There were a lot of stupid things right. we did as children. Like, right. okay. Well, you know, so this one, like don't don't kill yourself up. Don't kill yourself over it. The amount of people who did this are plentiful and people you may look up to and respect. There are many, many people who've had interactions as children, right, that, you know, are what they are. And it could be there was someone hurt on the other side. But the the other person is going to sit there wondering if they're a bad person for the rest of their life. That being said, going through these steps, whether it's writing a letter or becoming willing to correct it, or once they reach out and say, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm willing, I'm able, and uh, how can I so make that's right? certainly, if, if somebody reaches out and they felt like they were the victim in an interaction, because it's sometimes, often, it's difficult to tell with children uh, if there is really a perpetrator and a victim, but if somebody reaches out and they are, are opening themselves up, they want to heal or they want reconciliation, that's... Right. A rule of thumb that I've seen um, is a five-year age difference. You know, otherwise it could be normal exploration. Obviously, you know, my my case was a little bit different. It wasn't so much about child or not. There was a lot of physical violence attached to it as well, 
right, where he locked me in a room. I wasn't able to get out. He would pin me to the bed. So there was things that had nothing to do with with age, really. There was right. a, a physical and violent, there was nothing exploration um, about this. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. He had me trapped under him so multiple times. He would trick me in different ways and fool me in different ways, but... Yeah, so maybe it's a little bit it's a little bit different in that way, and age is not as much of a component. But what we're talking about is not two eight year olds exploring. What you're talking about is a thirteen year old and an eight year old, eleven year old and a six year old. That's the rule. I think is five years, but that rule is more for the person who was on the other end of it than right. who was abused versus the abuser. But that being said, sometimes our relationship dynamics that have nothing to do with age, right? But there's a power dynamic for whatever reason. You know, whether in uh, in the workplace, a, a right. boss and employee, it's which, not an which age again difference. becomes it's more devastating dynamic. for the person on the receiving end. For the victim, it becomes more devastating if there's a power component. There always is. Yeah. Right. There could be the physical power of the five years, right. or there could be overpowered by by force. I don't know, with the use of a weapon, or just happens to be physically stronger, or something else. Or yeah. a caretaker, or somebody that they're Correct. trusting, and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that we're actually. Uh, Diving into this. We're diving into this because we could go in so many different right. directions and somehow, and I was just, as I'm sitting here, I'm reflecting a little bit. I know there are many, many conversations that are going on uh, in many different spaces, but especially in our community, which I'm very grateful for. And I know you are, uh, you certainly have been the impetus for many of those conversations that have been taboo for a long time. Um, so, so we are, certainly there's a greater degree of openness and willingness to uh, share. And, you know, we're trying to do whatever we can to help people who are suffering and certainly to be able to protect our children who are still growing up from from ever being abused. Mm -hmm. But somehow I think that uh, conversations evolve all the time and it's very hard to keep people's attention on something. So... The nature of these conversations are, you know, we talk about this subject for a while and everybody talks about it and then, mm. and then we move on and we talk about something else. So I know, you know, the latest conversations have been uh, about new things, but I feel like we haven't talked about this in a while. So there was a period of time where, where the idea of, you know, child sexual abuse, we were talking about it a lot and there was tremendous awareness. And I know that many changes were, you know, my son, my youngest just went to camp and I know that as a result of these conversations, yours and others, um, there are new protocols at the summer camps, and I believe that, I believe that the, you know, the, the administration themselves have a greater awareness, and I would imagine that today, you know, they would act very, very swiftly uh, if something would, would come up. But I do feel like, you know, the conversation has been, you know, we, we, we moved on from it, and, and just reality is that uh, it must still be going on. I've I've seen recent mishandling of cases. Like, yeah. yeah, even with everything going on and all the noise, it's in the abstract, we know exactly what to do. When it's presented before us, <laughs> like every everything gets confu everything gets confusing. Right. We start to worry about, you know, offending people or exposing Correct. people and their families and and there's yeah, a lot not... of sympathy that somehow falls on the, uh, you know, for the perpetrator rather than the victim. Right. You know, one of <laughs> One of the things, I remember one sitting with uh, the director of one of the larger Chabad schools, or the dean director, and um, I was talking about a teacher that they had no longer worked in the school, but there were multiple allegations, and eventually the dean said to me, 
you know, listen, we did the best we could with this situation. We try to be better now. I was challenging him on some of the ways that I thought he wasn't being better now. This conversation is going back about 10 years. And he said, but I want you to know that even then, we didn't know so much, but as soon as we heard the allegations, at the end of that school year, he was gone. So I, I said to him, you know, and this is kind of the point. I said, so the allegation, which was more than an allegation, was that he was touching and kissing a child, right, in a classroom, and he was caught with this. But there were many allegations before. So there was a male teacher with a young male with a young boy, who he was touching, kissing, etc. I said, just imagine that it was two teachers, okay, who were caught feeling each other up and kissing each other. Both of them would be immediately suspended, right? So the only reason this teacher wasn't was because there wasn't an adult so that he was doing it to a child. So somehow, like you're saying, like the misplaced sympathy, if there were two adults doing the same thing, two willing adults, both would have been expelled immediately. Like we have no tolerance for gay teachers right. in our school, get out. But somehow a teacher abusing a child just because it was, you know, an eight-year-old and not a 38-year-old, somehow they got all confused on what to do. And... Uh, we got rid of him at the end of the year. I'm like, okay, so we understand what's confusing, what's confusing them. But obviously, those stories are a long time ago, and like you said, there is, there has been a lot of awareness and advancement. At the same point in time, I know of recent stories that have confounded and confused schools, right. school administrators, parents. Are there? I, I don't know if JCW is still functioning or fully functioning. I know there were some changes and so on, and I haven't really kept up with it in in many years. But are there still organizations that are out there at least to um you know part of jcw as i understood it was you know for somebody who was perhaps struggling about acting out to know that there would be consequences you know right um there's definitely no one there's definitely no one doing it in that way right um it seems to me like the community has moved towards a place of Today is okay. If there's an issue, we'll definitely call the cops, but you know, not before their investigation. Right? People forget what the cops are being called for. Cops are called to investigate. Cops don't. Cops don't have the authority to judge anyone. Right. Right. Like to catch someone in active crime, and even then, all they can do is apprehend them, and then they go before a judge. Right. So, oftentimes, when there's a story. So, well, we're not sure if it really happens. We don't know if to call the cops. Well, that's actually not when you call them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're, let them investigate. There's enough smoke here. You know, you have two kids which told you a teacher touched them. Uh, yeah, the kids don't usually lie about this stuff. And there's, you know, enough smoke around this that you know, the teacher admitted to tickling, not touching. Right? There's something. Yeah, okay, let's, let's bring them in and let's ask questions. So there's, that's one thing I found. And then there's this, the main thing that changed is, okay, sexually abuse affects people, so we'll help them get therapy. So that seems to be where most organizations in the Jewish community around the sexual abuse conversation say, let's help the victims get therapy. So they're, they're, we're definitely missing still the, um, the iron fist, which wasn't needed often, actually. It wasn't. Usually, uh, the, I, I do it all the time now, where people who were sexually abused, reach out to me, and I said, let me, maybe I can offer them the same gift, and I'll see if I can reconcile with their, uh, with their abuser, their abuser, and I'll have a nice conversation, I said, I'm not a hammer, I'm not here to, I don't have a wall of shame behind me, I hated that name anyway, but I don't have a wall of shame behind me, I'm not, it's, it's not my business, I just think it would be cool, assuming you're a decent guy, which 
maybe you are, even though something happened, because I was abused by a guy who I don't feel is a non-decent guy today. So I'm going to assume going into this conversation that something happened as a child. I've only ever got involved with those cases. Something happened as a child between you and this other guy, and I want to bring reconciliation for you and for, for him. And I've five or six. I've had five or six of those that have so, gone. So maybe part of the reason why well, we're sitting today is because somebody will listen to this podcast or watch it, and perhaps uh, they'll reach out to you. And, right. that's, and that's worth everything in the world, right? Right. My time is like since the podcast that people reach out. I saw you on a podcast I want to talk. My reason for doing the podcast was so that I don't have to give the message right. one at a time. <laughs> so many right. reasons. But yeah, occasionally it happens. Yeah. That, um, I or feel at least for somebody to know that there is an opportunity to do that. I think what, what you're saying as well is that oftentimes, you know, as a victim, maybe we would imagine that we would never be, be able to find that reconciliation or that healing with the perpetrator so that's also giving giving victims hope um right I, my, my overall message around this topic today is really around reducing um shame on all sides of it like shame is a very powerful tool and should be used very 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 carefully just to assume that just because a child was abused that there was some someone that's worthy of being shamed for sure. We don't know the context. We don't know the story. Was the kid eleven and he was six? We don't. Where are they today in their life? Were they abused also? Was something going on at the same time? It's it's not an excuse for them. What I'm saying is is that it's not it's not necessarily warranting of shame. Public public shaming is a tool that's used. It's almost like the highest level right, of in extreme cases. In very 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 right. extreme cases, and in. And it's so dangerous, public shaming, not only for them, but to bring shame to the overall conversation. Because imagine, you know, before there, there's an action, there's a thought. Right? So are you going to kill someone for being attracted to children? Even the term pedophile is an inappropriate term. Why are you putting someone down? They have an attraction that, all it means is that they have an attraction to children. Okay, so let them go work in it. Why do they have to, they didn't choose it. They didn't get a menu and say, I want to be attracted to you know, to these things, I, I I can't imagine that. It's unfortunate that they ended up with that attraction. So what would you want? What would be the healthiest thing for them is to feel comfortable. Enough to go and get help. It got help, exactly. Yeah. So and reducing the more shame, shame, the less exactly, chance the less likely. that they're going to go and get help. Exactly. And then what if they don't get help, what are they going to end up doing? Abusing children. So we think we help by adding shame. We've actually, we've actually hurt, you know. And I say hurt, we've actually contributed in some way to a child being abused. So in most cases, the answer is, reducing shame and to use the the that tool very 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 precisely because even when it's used correctly there's a consequence on the other end of someone sitting there and saying why like it helped there is a um organization i think it's called like verped or something where verped or virtuous pedophile and it's a group and a support group from my understanding they'll only work with people who've never touched a child but if they're dealing with the attraction and struggling with it and it could be very powerful right for some people and some people have shared that I, there was one guy I remember who um, Mayor Seawold confronted and he admitted that uh, he had abused children and he said it's as if a demon took over me that's that's the way he described it and he's like every time it happened it was as if a demon took over me and used my body to to do what it wanted me to do and I, the way Mary repeated the story to me is he said, I understand and I feel bad, but how do I know a demon doesn't take over you tomorrow? 
So meaning that there is something, right? Someone who's risking his life and his career and everything else when he went to to do that, there's a powerful force that's driving him. That's that's driving and giving people the best tools, which is an environment with much less shame around sex, to now go and hopefully That was that was another one of the books that were exchanged early on. Which one? Which one of hers, I'm not sure. Oh, Brene Brown. Brown. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I know that was a very powerful moment in your in your journey. Um, you know, when you discovered her, that was a very powerful moment for you. Yeah, I mean, she put a lot of words to, um, I guess, a lot of what uh, like emerged from from the years of work, which you know, this is an expression of that, which is how dangerous shame is. Her work and John Bradshaw's work, those two had the strongest impact on me with with shame and how many of us are walking around with such toxic levels of shame. And that's really at, at our core, like that's what's ailing us. And if we can relieve ourselves of the toxic shame, then you know, what's possible is Right. And that the shame is holding us back from seeking out the help that's in available. many cases, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. In many, many cases. Yeah. The three hardest words in the English word to say. I need your help. I need help, so, yeah. yeah. I need, I need help. help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's freaking hard. Like my an old sponsor of mine called it the uh, the thousand pound phone. You know, when you're in the room and even when you've sat in the meetings and you everything pick else, it up and ask. in that moment when you're struggling <laughs> with the trigger, can you pick it up and ask? Yeah. And ask for help. You know. Yeah, I think there's definitely importance on these um, these conversations. But right now, so much of my message, like really, 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 is around that. Someone said, "What's what's your podcast about?" I said, "It's it's giving permission to humans." to embrace the fact that they're having a human experience. Even shame is a very human emotion. It, is, it certainly is. <laughs> I don't think anything else can experience is. shame. Do animals experience shame? I don't know. I, I can't imagine that they do. <laughs> I don't know. All humans do. All humans do. All humans do. And at its toxic, at its most toxic level, it's, uh, I think what sits at, sits underneath all, uh, all of our issues whether it's addiction, whether it's... You internalize that shame. Yeah, it becomes... Um, yeah, it becomes a... It's not, it's not, I'm ashamed of what I've done. It becomes that toxic shame that toxic. Brene Brown talks about. Yeah. The yeah. way, I like the way Brene um, defines it because she's, so, she's so interesting that she defines these words. No one even would think to define a word like shame. What is shame? Shame is shame. What, are you gonna, <laughs> what more is there to say? But she says, um, shame is the fear of not being worthy of connection. So that we understand why it's so so toxic. Connection is so is so important to us. So if we if we fear that we're not worthy of it, specifically because of you know fill in the blank of what's causing that person to feel ashamed. It's like, it's like what they say about Alicia Benavuya that Acher uh, they called him Acher, mm-hmm. but they say that his greatest sin was that he didn't believe that there was any redemption for him. Oh, got it. So that's kind of the idea. He didn't believe yeah. that he was worthy of connection. Right. You know, because he did hear a voice that came out of the Holy of Holies that basically said that there is a path of return and recovery for everyone except for Acher. And the fact that he didn't protest. So that's kind of the idea. He didn't think he was worthy of connection anymore. God, God doesn't want me anymore. Right. Um, so he didn't bother. Yeah, I have an early podcast where I quoted, um, you know, Chaim Kohn. Yeah. 
Yeah, he had a podcast going for a little bit. I'm not sure if he still does. But um, he once said it was in a group, and he said if um, it's something to the effect of if there isn't if there isn't redemption for everyone, if there isn't a redemption card that we all get to play in this game, then I want out. Like, yeah, like some of us have done very, very difficult and horrible things. And all of us have hurt someone really badly, all of us. And uh, it's a child, a spouse, a sibling, a parent. We've all hurt someone really badly. And to be able to come to terms with that in some way and say we're still, we're still worthy of connection, we're still worthy of this, uh, this, this experience. Right. I think that's, that, that Hasidus helps us because it helps us to get the, to distinguish between you know, the action or the act and the person. Or if you get a little bit more involved, you have you know, the, good, the good part of self, the divine part of self, and then the animal self. Ah, the Tanya, the original so, IFS. Family. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> the IFS. Um, so, uh, you know, that's... that's uh, it says it. What's the, what's the word? It talks a lot about um, that in Tanya, that Marshkhar, right? Marshkhar is more like more depression. Atzvus and Marshkhar, yeah. Melancholy and, and depression. You know, right, chapters and, 26, 27. And oftentimes specifically because of a sin. Yes. Yeah. One of the... Um, I've told this to every single one of my sponsees multiple times. So even the ones who are not Jewish. So that, uh, you know, and before, da, before Shema, there's a prayer. And in that prayer, it says, Vahasr satan malfanenu yeah. So you've heard the... I haven't heard it. I'm, I'm getting ready to hear it now. Oh. <laughs> so apparently it's some Hasidic master, which yeah. is like, what do you mean the satan? Is it two satans, one before and one after? Like what's... What are you saying? To remove it, to remove this, the Sutton from before and the Satan from, from behind. So he said the Sutton, he said it's one Sutton, but he works in two ways. One is temptation and the other is guilt. So temptation, right? They go do X, Y, and Z, go do. Then you do it. And he says, ah, oh, you're a terrible person. He says the first one is very, very easy for us to deal with. We know how to deal with that one. He said it's the second one that gets most people. And that's what Altarev addresses in Tanya, that uh, basically the Sutton or the Yetzirah comes to you the morning after. So he's the one who schlepped you out to begin with. Right. right? Come, let's go party. You know, let's get into trouble. You know, and the next morning he stands over and he says, what's wrong with you? You know, and right. you're thinking, you're so confused. You know? But, uh, you know, part of what the Alter Rebbe is talking about in Tanya, and this is the Baal Shem Tev, there, there are many, many sources for this. But the idea that you, you get the, the message that don't even bother to try and get up or dust yourself off because now you're certainly not worthy of it. Exactly. And so that that keeps you that keeps you stuck. That's and, a shame. And of course, in in uh, in addiction, we have that that cycle of insanity, you know. And so you act out because you because it's too you painful to sit with those feelings. So you act out for some temporary relief, and then you end up with more shame and more guilt, and then you act out again. And that uh, it's very hard to right. break free of that. That's Is why it, he's talking it, about the satan. Uh, is right. more, more difficult to, <laughs> Much more difficult. to deal with. Yeah, and they get us for longer. Is it safe to say that anytime someone is experiencing this level of guilt and shame, it's coming from an unholy place? If you study well, the Alter Rebbe goes through you know, different uh, kinds of melancholy and depression and where they might be coming from. But it can be coming from a good place. It also depends, like the Alter Rebbe says, it depends when it's, when it's coming. If it's during productive time, so you realize that this is a voice that's trying to disturb your progress, then you know it's coming from the wrong place. 
Um, there are moments where a person should set aside time to do, you know, the personal, the reflection, the introspection. So that w it would be appropriate at that point. Oh, understood. You, know, you want to encourage people to be able to move on. Uh, you know, this doesn't define the rest of your life. Uh, don't internalize that shame, but you also have to work through it. Right. You got to work through it, but it has to be done in the appropriate setting at the appropriate time. So that's how the Alter Rebbe sort of distinguishes it. Right. It's a good way to. Um, it's a, I, I like that way because you're saying if you're proactively entering this state. And saying, okay, for the next half hour, you know, you have, let's say, a fourth-step inventory. Okay, you want to go through a four-step inventory. That is very appropriate. Or the ten-step inventory on a daily basis. Okay, so we're going to spend a few minutes. I want to go into any wrongdoings and feel it. Feel the pain from it. But if you're going about your day and the same feeling is coming, it's 100% coming from the says, even if, it's, even if it's about spiritual matters. So, in other words, you know, you missed, uh, I don't know, you missed your tefillin yesterday. You know, and now it's coming up during your productive hours. That's the Yetzirah trying to distribute. That's the Satan, you know, Me'acharenu, right. who's trying to convince you that, uh, oh, come on, let's not fool anybody here. Today, today you're going to make out like you're some tzaddik. Remember what we did yesterday? Right. So at that moment, it's inappropriate. But, you know, by, by in the Hasidic tradition, so we have Kriyash Mashalamita, not only to say the Shema before we go to bed, but to actually use that time as uh, we call it, but you want to do a review, a thorough review of your day, keep your side of the street clean, you know, um, don't carry things over from one day to the next. So that would be an appropriate time to say, okay, I'm in a safe space right now because it's not going to disturb my progress and it's something I need to work through. Sure. Because I can't let it sit. You know, you let things sit, as you know very well. 100%. You let things sit, they're going to fester, they'll come up in different ways, in different places. So well, it's okay, and go there, go into yeah, the fear. Yeah, it's yeah, okay to be there. disappointed. Yeah. It's okay yeah. to be disappointed in oneself. Yeah. It's okay. To and if somebody needs the help, if we're talking about something not, you know, something that happens day to day, but if it's something more serious or devastating, so then you need you need somebody to be there with you. Maybe it's a, a therapist or a coach or someone to help you through it. Right. What you're saying is very important. First of all, uh, bef before I go to that, in terms of a therapist or someone to help us through it, one of the reasons I found that so, that's so important is because that's what combats the shame, because the shame is afraid of connection. So using this same infraction as a tool for connection is what's so powerful. That's, that's, how, that's why I find meetings so powerful is because some of the... Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah. The most important relationship in one's life is formed in a place that they once felt was so shameful that they wouldn't be worthy of connection. And here they are flipping it on its head and connection is formed around this same, the same thing. You, you know, I was once, um, they would call it fellowship, right? We go after, uh, after a meeting, go, let's say grab pizza or something else. Or we stand in the parking lot and smoke cigarettes. We're going out. So we all went out for pizza and, um, you know, you can imagine meetings, right? The rich people, poor people, old people, young people, different nationalities, dressed formally, dressed informally. I mean, just like, a, you know, we're probably 12 to 14 
of us there. And um, the waitress asked one of us something like, how do you guys know each other? <laughs> Good question. So, right. But the like that bond, like what is that bond? Oh, we all drank way too much alcohol. We all watched way right. too much porn. Right. But but that is very powerful and, and it's the experience that people have once they enter the room. Yeah. And you realize, you know, for all my life I've been thinking that, you know, I must be, you know, you talk about monsters, right? Right. Um, I'm just the worst person in the world. If anybody would ever know, right? right? And then suddenly you walk into a room and you hear similar stories and you realize, hey, wow. there are others that are struggling in, in, in the same way or variations of the same way. And that's incredibly, um, is it liberating? Is, it's empowering. And that's what people discover in that room. It's incredibly um, connecting. Yeah, well, that's, and, and we have it in the Hasidic uh, Brotherhood as well, the idea of talking and sharing with another person, you know, the expression that I'm sure you've heard before, but when, when you share with another person, so it's two divine souls right. against one animal soul mm -hmm. because the other animal soul is sitting out. I'm, I'm not interested in helping anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that formula does work, and it does help a lot you know, with, uh, with the shame. I, I just feel like um, people have the experience growing up in our community where they felt that the environment sort of, you know, um, let me see how I'm going to say this, but, you know, the, the spiritual mentors uh, were not willing to be vulnerable with us. And so they, they projected this, you know, almost perfect ascetic persona which wasn't real. And wasn't so real. we, who were trying to receive from them and feel comfortable with them, couldn't, couldn't feel comfortable with them because I was human. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm probably not worthy or uh, I would never want to share with them. And I think that over time, more of, the be, more of the spiritual mentors have been willing to be a little bit more honest about their own humanity. And so that really helps because it allows those who are under their tutelage to feel comfortable enough to reach out to them. Right. You know, it dispel is. some of the shame that you're, well, 100%. you know, again, the spiritual mentors are also dealing with their own shame about being human, you know, but getting rid of some of that shame just opens up that uh, channel. Yeah, that was a pathway for, yeah. Uh, for living. Yeah. I think it's important what you're saying because very often the, you know, we say the sudden comes from before and after, but he doesn't come and tell us he's a sudden. He comes dressed in holy garb and uses holy words. How could you? You're disappointing this person. You understand your ancestors, whatever. It can really oh, yeah. destroy us with the uh, with a beautiful language. It usually it usually speaks in Hebrew and Yiddish. In my boy, <laughs> yeah, mine, mine is definitely Yiddish. <laughs> so, right, using a lot of this yeah. language. Ling it's like definitely. I was sitting with a um, young guy. I don't know, maybe twenty, who um, was going through a lot in his life, like in his family life, and. Uh, he sat down with me because he was struggling with porn. And you see, like, the shame, you know, like such shame. So I said to him, I said, is it hard for you to tell me what you're saying? And he said, yeah, I just feel like I'm such a bad person. I said, but why are you telling me? So, well, because I know you talk about it. I said, well, do you think I'm such a bad, <laughs> you know, such a bad person? And I'm like, well, that's that. So I said, who's the voice? Who's there? Is there someone like this voice that's killing you? Who's the voice? So he mentioned a few. 
right? Few that he felt like he felt so bad, like you're disappointing. I said, listen, I don't know them. I don't know them well. And even if I did know them, they may not have shared this part of life with me. I guarantee you two things. They have money problems and they have sex problems because everyone I've ever met has problems in those two arenas of life. These energies are too powerful for us humans to wield without getting burnt a little bit by, uh, by. so like just, just easy. And that's what you're saying with these mashpiyam. I certainly felt that. I think I, f- I felt very like it went to the Rebbe in some way where he was projected as a perfect person. And I was like, what is the point? Like when I got older, I'm like, what, what utility is there for me to honor someone who was just perfect, had no work to do what he did. I said, okay, should I honor a machine which can stay on 24 hours a day? I get so excited, computer. I never have to turn off this computer. This thing, you just charge it. Wow, amazing. So what's impressive about someone who couldn't sleep? Only if they were dealing with regular, in some way, some human experience. I understand their ideas. Okay, it comes in, a little bit different job, a little different reality. But if there wasn't some work, if there wasn't some struggle, if there wasn't something to overcome then it wouldn't particularly be impressive. We'd have no reason to have that person in the front of the room. I think uh, they say about the Rebbe Maharash, I believe it's the Rebbe Maharash, that um, a chassid once came to him for his guidance, for his help. And the Rebbe Maharash had sent him away because he couldn't help him. And the Rebbe Maharash secluded himself in his room for the next few days, I think it was. And at some point he shared beyond that, that every time somebody comes asking for his help, he has to be able to identify, you know, a chassid comes and he shares, you know, he's struggling with money or with sex, you're talking yeah. about. So the Rebbe has to be able to identify something within himself on a small measure, on some kind of level, where he's able to identify with that chassid. And right. then he's able to help him. Right, if he can't find the but problem in him. He, if he's completely removed, then he really isn't able to help right. that person. Because you have to, I, I think, again, it was maybe also the Rebbe Maharash who used to change his clothing very... Oh, he used to uh, perspire. He used to sweat terribly, and uh, one of the attendants asked him why he's sweating so much, and he said, "Do you know what it means that every time a chassid comes in, I have to undo my own garments? In other words, I have to, I have to free myself of myself, enter into that person, sort of live the experience with them. Then I have to extract myself, go back, become the <laughs> rebbe again, right. find the solution. <laughs> so that's exhausting. That process is exhausting. So." Again, I think, I think the Rebbe, and, and certainly those of us who had experiences with the Rebbe and those of us who are familiar, the Rebbe was, n- was never trying to overwhelm people with his greatness, holiness, purity. And the Rebbe certainly was great and pure and holy on a level. And I'm not an expert in that, but certainly the Rebbe was. But in terms of, uh, and this is feedback, not from my own experiences, but from people who interacted, you know, with the Rebbe, and no matter who they were, what, where they were coming from, or what they were struggling with, they always felt that the Rebbe wasn't looking down on them, wasn't sitting up in his ivory right. tower and dispensing some kind of uh, advice, but the Rebbe was in it with them. And that was really the Rebbe's, uh, the Rebbe's strength. And again, this is kind of the same idea. I think that mashpim, spiritual mentors, rabbis, yeah, community what, leaders, children, what... or, or your students, or anybody that comes to you, uh, they have to feel like, you know, find a way of being in it with them. You're saying it's easy enough to do that because most of us are not on the level of a Rebbe. Most he, of us have those struggles within ourselves. And, and just to let that person know that, you know. Right, does it, right it doesn't need to be, it doesn't right. need to be exact, but on some level. On some level, On yeah. some level we yeah. can resonate. Like, for, for example, I've spoken to people who have abused children. I have. So is it so, is it so far out there? 
for me to imagine an uncontrollable sexual desire. Like to to be so overwhelmed by sexual desire. What? How much porn have I watched? How many strip clubs have I been in? I understand this. The I don't understand this specific. I don't. I don't. I haven't experienced this specific strain that this guy is talking about. Okay, fine, but. And ninety percent of it, I, I get, I get the feeling. But, but you understand how how this is yeah. something that if you don't, if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't hold on to the reins, it can take you anywhere, uh, very quickly. Yeah. So this, the story you're saying, I think Yossi Jacobson shared it um, in a recent podcast I did with him. Um, it may be the Mittler Rebbe. He said the story about, but maybe the Rebbe Rosh. I'm not sure, but he he did continue the story, and he said that the Chassid asked him. So the person who came came to the Rebbe to actually talk about a sex problem. What was the problem? He's attracted to dead people. I think it's called necrophilia. He, either he was thinking about it, obsessing, or actually did it, had, had sex with a, a dead human body. And when the person came to the Rebbe, whether it was the Marash or the Rebbe, he was almost the way, the way Rabbi Jacobson shared. It was almost like, oh my goodness, how could this problem be inside me? Because obviously if the person is coming to me for help then this problem lives inside. So he went for a few days to find where this could be inside him because he knew it was inside him because the person came for Otherwise, help. Otherwise, the chassid would not wouldn't have come, have come to, for help. Right. So it wasn't only he had to find it inside him, it was he knew it was inside him. And apparently, the way I think I Jacob said the story, he was rolling around in his room, there was noise, there was you know things going, going on. And when he eventually came out and was able to call the person back, was able to help him, he explained what he found in himself. And he said, what is it to sleep with a dead person? is to be willing to take energy from something that has none, right? But being to so desperate to, so de- so desperate for energy, that even something that's basically lifeless. That's dead. Yeah. So what, what Wright Jacobson shared about, the, uh, about this Rebbe was that he recognized that, you know, sometimes he's sitting and teaching and the person on the other end is asleep. <laughs> right. But still, he keeps talking. Right. There's right? no he's, life there. <laughs> there's no life, but he's still getting something from it. It's still right. giving him something. So he said on some level, he found this This he's getting this, some this satisfaction, problem. even though there's there's Right. The reason I love no this life. story, to me, like this story is so antithetical to what I felt as a child. Not to what maybe they were, the message they were sending, but it's that here was someone who genuinely struggled, genuinely worked. And that's why he's sitting there. He's sitting there because he worked like when there was... Uh, like what is it like finding chametz? He went searching right. for three days because he knew there's got to be a speck. So he knew there's got to be a speck somewhere, and then he found it. And then he comes back and says, "Okay, now I have something to share with you. Look, look what I found. That's such a beautiful like that story. You know, wakes you up. But someone who like, oh wow, he can work. You know, ninety years straight without sleep. Okay, right. so could some computers. Just to feel comfortable that when you share a struggle with another person, you don't feel judgment." Right. You feel the com- their compassion. That's yeah. what, that's what people need. I mean, when 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 people are speaking to me and they share something that's incredibly shameful, incredibly shameful. I'm thinking of a guy I've been helping for a little while, and he was like, "Whoa, so 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 down, so depressed," and but he didn't tell me why. He didn't tell me why. Um, and eventually, after like months of talking and different things, and there was you know some some financial difficulties that were going on that I helped out a little bit with. And eventually we were sitting together and he says to me, um, you know, I kind of never share this with anyone, but maybe this will help explain why, you know, why I am the way I am. And he shared a financial mistake 
that he had made, and he thought I was going to like <laughs> destroy. He was afraid him. of your judgment. He was so afraid of it, and I said, "Listen, I haven't spoken so publicly about these things, and I know I wear very fancy shirts, right? right? Very expensive stuff, but I've <laughs> I, this feeling that you're talking about. I said I've I've had it." I know exactly. I know that feeling. I know that feeling of making horrible, horrible, horrible financial decisions one after the next and being in a space where you're like, wow, I, I cannot believe I got here. I cannot believe I did these things. Like, how, how foolish could I be? And uh, it eased it something in there where he shared something that was so difficult. Schneider, like, to get these words out of this guy, it was like his teeth were, were, uh, were chattering. When he finally got it out, it was after months and a lot of like, there was a lot of safety that had to be created in order for, for him to finally share this. And really, like as far as, yes, it was a very tough experience and it created ramifications for, for others that were painful and he has to bear the brunt of that, that pain. There's nothing to do with that. I can't absorb that. But the shame he felt, like I'm the only idiot on the planet who ever made this mistake. Easy does it. Easy does it. I've, I you know, and I was able to share an experience of, of my own, right, where... And that gave him strength. There was, there was common ground. There was common ground. And the experience included the shame afterwards, right? That I'd made a series of financial decisions and I was, ended up in a very, very tough spot and I just could not believe I, could not believe I was there. Could not believe I could have... Uh, I mean, I did, you know, a number of years ago, I was dealing with some very, very difficult uh, yeah. financial stuff, knowing about it. And yeah, that was a series of mistakes and incredible shame. For those for those mistakes and sharing those, then we we bonded over over that. And I think for for Mashpiyam who are listening in, that's that's usually the move. That's usually the move when be, someone be comes. Be vulnerable. Yeah, when someone comes, that's right. that's usually the move. When right. someone comes and says like they've unburdened themselves of something that's so shameful and so difficult, is if there's something we can find in ourselves right, right. that's similar and then share it with that person, the shame is gone. Right. And it doesn't have to be. You don't have to share with him your deepest darkest. You no. just have to be able to share something that allows that person yeah. to feel what you're de- what you're yeah. describing. So, and and maybe this is a message for people that are God willing listening and will be listening. Um, we talked about the shame component of it, but also the idea that oftentimes coming clean, as we know, um, will interrupt the cycle because it only that cycle continues. You know under the cover of dark, mm-hmm. you know, the longer, you know, the lie, as long as people don't know about it, and that's the space where it keeps festering and it keeps growing and you keep acting out again and again. But the moment that you expose it, it becomes a lot more difficult. That's another book that you shared with me, Positive Intelligence, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about that a lot. But but the idea that you go and you now, you know, you sit down with somebody and you come clean, again, it has to be the right person, it has to be Right, because you're opening yourself but, up in that space. It, it so someone can add shame. It interrupts a process, especially, you know, you're talking about porn addiction or sex addiction or others. And uh, people who are, you know, who are married, they have spouses, they have children, people who are in positions of leadership, whether in terms of business or, you know, Avedis Akedish and so on. But um, as, as long as you keep that, as long as it's secret, you know, you're going to suffer for another day and another day. The moment that you come clean and you shine a light on it, it has nowhere left to hide. I say. Sunlight so, is said to be the best disinfectant. Yeah, and that's why it's so important for people to 
kind of find the courage. We, as a community, have to be able to provide them with the safe spaces because they have to, you know, every person has to come to that willingness that you talked about earlier. Right. You have to be willing to do it. And again, that's earlier on in the steps. You also have that, to have that willingness before you actually turn it over. You have to have the willingness. But you have, when a, when a person is, you know, that they have to come to on their own. But we, as a community, are trying to provide the safer spaces and sort of put the message out that uh, you know we're not going to judge you. Uh, you will find comfort here. You will find the support that you're looking for. Hundred percent. You know what's interesting is I'm thinking that a lot of the spaces that are afforded to people often become um, things that in, instead of saying okay okay, there's shame, let's become shameless, like the opposite, but like, let's throw it all out. And then they become judgment-free, sure, a judgment-free zone, but then it also becomes a standard-free zone, which is not always which is not always good. So the risk for not creating a judgment-free zone is that you end up sending people to places which are judgment-free, but most of those spaces which are judgment-free are also standard-free. So it's like, okay, anything goes. We have no judgment here, you know. Whereas... You're, bring, you're bringing up something that's very, very, very deep. And that's why, as a community, oftentimes we we struggle. I, I was having this conversation with someone, uh, you know, talking about this is one of the ongoing, you know, conversations about uh, what do we do with our children that are struggling and different approaches. Um, you know, some... Some still argue that uh, we have to be very firm with them, and um, and others. I think you know we talked about Rabbi Jacobson and uh, Rabbi Russell, if you're familiar mm. with him. But a lot of them say you got to show them love, unconditional love, and there's no judgment. There was uh, you know recently a tragedy that happened in the Bell's community in Israel, where uh, I guess a bocher, you know, a young man, um, kind of left the fold. And his family shut him out, and eventually he committed suicide. This happened a few weeks ago. And the Belzer Rebbe was so shocked by what happened that he immediately called together community leaders, and he said, we are going to form a VAD, an organization, that is going to reach out to every single one of these children who have left the fold. There will be no conditions whatsoever, no preconditions. Just reach out to them, show them love. There's no... You have to keep Shabbos. You have to wrap your tefillin. We just need to stay in touch with them, realizing um, the devastating impacts on shutting children out. Yeah, it's huge. But uh, so this parent that reached out to me, you know, who's kind of struggling with their own child, and we were talking about it, and he was trying to get my, not that I am, uh, you know, a professional. I don't believe myself to be an authority, but I do have my own children, and I'm in the community, and I'm struggling with, uh, with very much the same. But I think there has to be a balance. In other words, what you're saying is, is that if we create an environment that's you know, judgment-free, guilt-free, shame-free, standard-free, that's not the objective. No. Not that nothing Sometimes matters Sometimes you anymore. have to, so, like that's a step up. Right. From In other a, words, if you have somebody who's home. suffering, you know, somebody who's suffering, if it's a mental health issue or it's a, an abuse issue or a trauma issue, so sometimes we have to focus on that first. Right before we can, you know, help help that person. Right, it's certainly right. a step up, right, to have a, a zone with um, a ton of shame, and then say, okay, here's a space without right. shame. But, but how do you balance? Also has that? No how do you balance that? 
I think the 12 steps does that fairly well, right? right? Like we still have, you know, standards within the meetings. We have certain principles that we adhere to. We're not, we're not putting you down. We're not saying you're a bad person. You don't, but there is a, in, in this space, there's a certain, there's a certain standard, but also listen, there's, there's a progression of things. And if someone is at that level of suicidal, then yeah, we have to just, do that for the moment. Yes. Yes. But the the long term obviously is to have a space with, with high standards, right? That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want for the people we love. Is yeah, we can do incredible things. Why have low standards? Yeah, and I think that many of us are struggling with that at this point, because I think there are more spaces that are shame free and guilt free and maybe a bit to the extreme. And now many are wondering if. You know, we're sort of giving our children a pass to say, well, these things are not really so important, but they are really very important to us. Yeah, listen, when it comes to children, and my children are not as old as yours. My oldest is five, but, um, you know, five-year-olds go through uh, difficult periods also, and four-year-olds and three-year-olds. I think they say the terrible twos, the horrible threes, and then it just gets worse (laughs) and worse. (laughs) I can tell you without fail, at least um, with one of my children, uh, when my wife and I are struggling a little bit more he he becomes a little terrorist he knows it he feels it he feels it feels it 100 percent. and um i i think i think my wife and i do a better job of that now where it won't go more than three or four days of him just acting difficult where we won't look at each other and say hey there's something uh the the answer is here and that's, you know, with a lot of these these families, so you're telling me that this family, this Belzer family, which had a kid who left the fold and committed suicide, left the fold and was rejected and committed suicide. So the kid had 100% of the issues in the family and the parents had none? They were, <laughs> well, I always think about a letter. I don't remember all the details of it, but somebody had shared with me a letter, the Rebbe's response to... Um, I guess parents that had reached out to the Rebbe about a child of theirs that were struggling, you know, with Yiddishkeit, with observance, and they were asking the Rebbe for advice. And the Rebbe actually lists a number of things, very interesting. Uh, one of the things the Rebbe says is to try to find a contemporary of his, you know, a good friend to be a positive influence. The Rebbe lists a number of things, and at the end, the Rebbe basically tells the parents that they have to check their own Yiddishkeit. In other words, the Rebbe is kind of saying that, that what we mm. see happening in our children oftentimes are, are it's not... It's it's a bit of a reflection, not a bit of of what's happening. You know, I don't want to put all of it there because there could be children that have picked up struggles outside of the home. Uh, you want to talk about it didn't begin with me. You want to talk about you know attachment or all of the IFS or so on. So it's very it, there are many many layers here, but certainly things that are showing up in your children's lives and things that they're struggling with are indicators of what's happening in our lives. And certainly you and I both know that as we get healthier as parents, and I know for, for myself uh, and Devorah, um, as we get healthier as parents, immediately we see that in our children. We see those positive. Correct. We see it in our children, for 100%, 100%. sure. Um, just like they talk about in recovery, right? You're, if you don't interrupt the process, then basically what you do is you pass these things along to your children. 100%. Not only will you suffer what your parents suffered, but if you don't put a stop to it, if you don't heal, then you are going to gift that. And I don't, I mean that 
quote unquote. Yeah, you kind of leave that's, the unfinished that's the business legacy. to them. That's it. You leave the legacy to your children. So the healthier we get, the healthier our children get. So yes, uh, our children really are mirrors. Um, and the Baal Shem Tov said that not even the Baal Shem Tov said that generally, yeah, that if you if you identify something in another person for whatever reason, if you if you feel uh, you know immediately you feel the sense of judgment, then uh, that's something that you are struggling with. Right. You know, and you, you got to check yourself on that. Even more so yeah. with our kids. Also with our kids, it's, you know, we're creating the soup that they're swimming in. <laughs> you know? Right. This uh, relationship therapist, my wife and I went to, said, um, the space between the couple is the playground for the children. Right. So what is in that space? Is it harshness? Is it impatience? Is it anger? Is it resentment? Then that's the playground. Well, so you of think course you're fighting once sick. your kids are sleeping, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, uh, they will matter. know it. No, they know. I remember uh, Chaim Drizen, who's no. a, a therapist and a clinician. So yeah. Years and years ago, we invited him to our Chabad house, and he did a little couples you know, workshop. And um, so he challenged everybody, and he said, okay, take your time, divide your time. So you've got you know, however many hours you're at work. Okay, what's, what's the balance? What time do you have left? He says, tell me something. If you had to divide that time between your spouse and your children, how would you divide it? So most of us, yeah, you know, you think five, to yourself, yeah. oh, I'm going to give 95% of the time, you know, my focus, my attention, my love to my children, whatever, whatever's left. You know, when I get into the bedroom after a long day and after I put my kids to bed and everything else, whatever's left, I give to my wife. And he says, actually not. Because the energy, and I'll say it in this way, but whatever you invest in your spouse your children are going to benefit from that. But what you invest in your children, you're, you could be the best father and she could be the best mother, but your, your relationship doesn't benefit from that. Right. So the ch children will benefit most if you have a great relationship. So I know like with my kids, you know, I made, we made a point of trying to get out, uh, whether it was once a week or whatever, you know, spending time together. Um, or taking little, you know, staycations together. And, you know, sometimes the kids will complain, oh, you're going away again? <laughs> but now, as they're a little older, they appreciate that we were investing in each other, and they benefited from it right. as children. A, a friend of mine, an older friend of mine, told me, he said, the greatest gift I gave to my kids was uh, treating their mother well. MS. Yeah. So may I learn from him. Yeah. May we all learn from him, <laughs> learn right? From I was just yeah. thinking of, um, okay, I'll come to me. <laughs> but uh, There was a, a therapist um, speaking to, his name is Mark Brenner in California, and he said that, uh, he told me, you know, with sometimes when he's, he's, I think, fairly well known as someone who's able to get through people, get through to people who are difficult to get through to people, okay? And, uh, I think uh, he, he's been coined the family whisperer, I don't know by himself or by others, but he has a very good way with, uh, with children and a way of, you know, connecting and relating to them. And uh, one time in talking to him, he said that some people he's not able to get through too. So he said, in those cases, he just waits for their kids to grow up. He says, and then they'll see all the problems, all their problems right Sh there. Will show up in their children. Will show up in their kids. And then, you know, those who are a little bit more honest... We'll say, oh, wow, like this is my creation. It's literally our creation. It's, you know, we've we set up everything for these kids and then we blame them when they're having a hard day. It's, it's your, what's wrong with you? What do you mean what's wrong? 
you raised them, you nurtured them, you clothed them, you bathed them, you fed them. Like the whole world, your whole world you created. You don't know what's wrong with that. What's wrong sometimes with you don't make the connection. You know, we always repeat that story. And I think it's from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. If you want to, when I was younger, I thought yeah. I could change the world, right? Change yourself and eventually the world will change around you. And oftentimes we don't make that connection in our own little, in our own little world. You know, the world of right. our own home and our children. The healthier we get, the healthier our children are going to get, period. Like you said before, yeah. the greatest gift you can give your children is yeah. treating your spouse well, treating your wife well. So, and, uh, and that's a wonderful thing that we've seen. There's uh, certainly a lot more awareness today than there was when we were growing up. And there are, you know, there are, there's help available. There's less shame, you know, going to therapy. Today, that's become something that's accepted, even celebrated, encouraged. Maybe years ago, it wasn't. Um, and so maybe people hesitated going into therapy because they were worried about the shame and guilt that would be right. the stigma that was associated with it. Yeah. So there's a lot more of that kind of awareness that's happening in mental health and so on. And uh, we are beginning to realize um, that we need to make these important changes. This is how we are going to change the world. We need to give our children that gift. Right, not saddle them with our problems to fix. Yeah, and bar, each, you each know, one of like us are born with God, their own. In the Jewish community, the Jewish psyche, we we have we have so many layers and layers of trauma and and high cortisol levels, and it didn't mm -hmm. begin with me and all that kind of stuff that we're already gifting our children. Um, and that's and that's stuff that I'm just passing it along. It's not you know nothing that I am uh, directly responsible for things that didn't even happen in my lifetime. I'm just passing them, you know, I received them from my parents, they got them from their parents. It's part of the tradition. Yeah. You know, these 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 traumas, you know, as a psyche, but we have to interrupt those things. Yeah, I say break the chain. Break the chain. Sometimes people say, well, it's not my responsibility because that's coming from generation before. Well, now it is yours. It's like the right. Rebbe used to say, call me shalinivna beisamikdash biyamov. You know, a person who, if the Beis Amikdash is not rebuilt in your day, it's as if it was destroyed in For your sure. day. So I say that that's got nothing to do with me. It happened to you know thousands of years ago. It's not my sins, right? Because, and and why? So the Rebbe would say, "But how could you put that responsibility on me? I wasn't even around." So the Rebbe would say, "Well, because if you have the ability to interrupt or change something and you don't do it right now, it becomes your responsibility." So as parents, I could blame whichever generation I want to, but now I'm the father. And if I don't take responsibility for that, for something that I didn't even do, it doesn't matter. Right. Your kid is not dragging his grandfather into therapy. Ex exactly. He's dragging you into So therapy. if I don't do it, if I don't heal, I will pass it along. It will linger for one more. Right. I guess I was, that's what it means to become an adult. Yeah. That's, that's taking responsibility, becoming adult. Right. I was just sharing with, uh, you know, another delicate story. I can't share all the details, but... A woman was sharing something with me and something that uh, she's been struggling to resolve, something she's been carrying, but it's not her burden. It was her parents' burden. They never resolved it. Now it becomes her burden. And I said to her, and she's telling me, well, I don't know if I want to put it on my kids. Maybe I just won't say anything about it. And I said, remember something. You don't resolve it now, then you're leaving it. For your children will suffer. The same thing you're suffering a whole life, your children are going to suffer. So you need to have the courage to, to interrupt it. And like you're saying, it's going to show up in your children, whether you like it or not. Um, even if you make sure that all the kids are asleep, 
or uh, you know, you never unlock that closet, or you never breathe a word, your children will suffer. Now, when you get close enough to a family, you start seeing the the pattern. It's sometimes hard to see in our own family, so we can look at our in-laws for it. Sometimes right. it's a little bit easier because the family we are close to, but we're not um, as part of it. And you can see things that uh, from generation to generation. Yeah, you just see it's on. It just happens, and obviously, it happens in each of our families as 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 well, right? right? That just things that. Um, I can tell you from my own personal life, if there was anything that I'd ever worked on, um, I, I could immediately see changes in my children, and I wouldn't have to say anything to them. So here's the million-dollar question, yeah. right? That's for sure, right, that the changes will change your children. Will the changes in you change your parents? Um, Does it go upstream? I, I believe not in, in a direct way, but I believe in an indirect way. And again, you know, there are parts of my story that are sensitive and I have to be considerate and so mm -hmm. on. Um, my parents are amazing people. You know, mm -hmm. um, my father, you certainly know, and my mother. But I believe that when children are doing their own work and they are reaching, you know, greater states of awareness and enlightenment and introducing, they go back and share with their parents in a very gentle way. Because remember that, you know, our parents could be sensitive but if we share with them in a gentle way and they see the progress that we are making, um, then I think it might help them as well. So I think it, it, it could travel upstream, but it's a little bit more difficult. There's a lot more you know, resistance and it's not sort of the direct path because the change that a child makes, I don't believe will automatically impact a parent. It will certainly automatically impact the child. But, uh, but I think our parents who are in touch with us and see the progress that we're making, I think it inspires them. Um, it inspires them, yeah. Well, what do you make of the fact that it's only in the last 10 years that these things have become part of the conversation? But now they, they almost feel, to me, they almost feel like the bedrock of life. Like I don't have another framework for living day to day than this one. It feels to me like the bedrock even of Judaism and spirituality. Like, what is all of that if it's not this personal growth? And yes, we may use, you know, psychological language to talk about these terms. But um, it seems from this conversation that this is a day-to-day -day reality and checkpoint in your life, as it is in mine, these kind of ideas. What do you make of the fact that 10 years ago they... They almost weren't there at all. Look, I don't know. I'm sure that there are people who can do a proper study and, and analyze the psyche and what we went through and what we suffered through. But my experience with Hasidus, right? I'm looking at Hasidus today, and I see it differently as a, mm. as a grown-up than, you know, I guess you, you begin to appreciate it more and more. But I look at Chassidus and I say to myself... It's like watching uh, a Disney movie as a kid. Yeah, but... Like, that's what the story was right, where you watch the, the last few, the last... Uh, I don't remember when it was. I was putting, you know, my son to sleep. And uh, in his room, he has... Sichus uh, in English has the biographies of, of the Rebbes in English. And it's, it's, you know, it's an easy read. It's made for, I guess, teenagers or children. So, I'm, you know, I'm lying there with my son. So I pick them up and I start reading through them. The The... Chassidus was, there was, there's so much self-awareness in Chassidus, right? The early Chassidim, um, they certainly believed that, you know, this was the only path. 
I don't know where it was interrupted or somehow how, you know, how that wasn't communicated uh, properly to us. But, you know, spend time learning the, you know, the Rebbe Rashab's Mamarim. This is someone who had profound self-awareness. I mean, incredible. Uh, and, and I guess what Chassidus is, is arguing is that you can't really make any pro- you're not going to evolve if you don't have this kind of self-awareness. So I, I don't know where it was interrupted, but I think that this was the gift that the Alter Rebbe gave us, and this was the gift of Chassidus, and there are you know generations of this of this tradition. Um, it wasn't necessarily communicated to me again in my personal experience from some of the spiritual mentors that I that I had. So I, I don't know where this has come from. Um, right. I'm Earlier sure. you were saying about the base of Mikdash, right? That Whoever hasn't built it, whoever hasn't built the temple, their days as if they destroyed it. Obviously, there's a concept that there's the inner temple as well that we're um, responsible for, perhaps more responsible for. Right? Meaning, there's certainly we can say that about our own inner temple, and how do we build that unless we uh, degrease it a little bit? Chabad Chasidis is calling us to that work because otherwise, you have a Shulchan Aruch, and the Shulchan Aruch you know, tells you the do's and the don'ts. And so, so the Shulchan Aruch very much deals with a person as a behavioral creature, with this whole inner world that's, that's underneath it. And uh, Chassidus calls us into that important work. I don't, I don't see how somebody could be working the program of Chassidus and not you know, consider all of these things. That's kind um, of, maybe that's another way of asking my, the same question, is it seems to be so much a part of the conversation in the last 10 years, but how was it understood 20, 30 years ago? It's a, it's a good question. What was the framework for it? It's like, uh, you know, there's Ayem Yem, it comes from uh, the Samach Tzedek, and I don't remember it off by heart, but uh, that Samach Tzedek is basically saying that the Daven, to have it easy in your sp- spiritual work, that's, that's, that would be inappropriate. We don't, we don't do that. All right. On the contrary, he says. It's almost, and I'm, of course, paraphrasing, it's almost like you say, you know, bring it on. I want more of this because I understand that this struggle and this hard work, that's, that's where I find my liberation, right? That's where I discover the, discover the, the true self, the yeah. higher self. And it's a Bruce Lee quote. You don't know, pray for an easy life, pray for the... And that's effectively what the yeah. Samach Tzedek is saying, but uh, he yeah. says it, he says it <laughs> right. in his own beautiful words. Right. But that's the idea. Chassidus talks about not to look for an easy pass, but to to work. It's in that work. It's in that struggle. Right. And really that inner... Uh, it's in that struggle. Inner work. You know, my, my example that I always like to use, and I was talking about it this morning, because in Tanya we're learning Iger uh, Satshuva now. We're talking about Tshuva. So uh, I always talk to them about... Um, about... I use the example of the personal trainer. Right. right. Uh, Why is it that the righteous would always welcome the suffering of this world? It says that righteous would welcome the suffering of this world because they would understand that suffering as God showing them love. Because suffering of this world helps to, you know, purge the, you know, the stain of sin. It helps, you know, people evolve, right? We were talking about, I was talking about it with Tyler when I came to the front door, right? Uh, you know, to be comfortable and routine right. doesn't, yeah. doesn't help me much. Right, we need the ice um, cold water. Yeah, the ice cold water. Right, the ice bath that we took. Which, by the way, I'm still my my body yeah, is still, still <laughs> I'm still feeling it. <laughs> Told you, I saw so, this. It's like a know. positive buzz, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. But but um, 
you know, so we were talking about God as the personal trainer. If you're, uh, if you're getting ignored, right? If you're foolish, you think, oh, he loves me so much. He's just, you know, he leaves me alone today. And somebody says to you, he's such a fool. He leaves you alone today because he doesn't believe you have anything more to give. Because if he felt that you have something more to give, he'd be, he'd be pushing you. He'd be driving you, right? You walk into a gym and you see, you, know, you see this trainer beating somebody <laughs> up. You say, hey, what are you, you know, stop that. You don't have the perspective, right? Meanwhile, this guy's getting paid. I'm paying him to beat me up. Why? Because I understand what right. he's doing for me. And uh, so with God, it's kind of the, you know, it's the same thing. Right. So again, right. I, a, I don't know what the answer is. A good trainer knows how to yeah. get maximum results with minimum. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so I don't know why we didn't have this awareness before. Maybe some people right. did. Or, or where that communication was lost. But certainly when you read, you know, early Hasidus. Yeah, it's almost hard to read and it. Read, and lens. you read everything that the Rebbe wrote and everything that the Rebbe was pushing for. It's, it's always been there. It's always been there. And somehow, you know, we've missed it. And I'm glad that we're coming back to that awareness and that we find that, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, people who are, you know, looking, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, like the famous story of the guy who's looking for the treasure and he goes, he travels to Prague hmm. because he has the dream. It's under the bridge in right. Prague and he gets yeah. there uh, and he's told, ah, you know, uh, the captain of the guard says to him, oh, you have that dream. I have a dream that there's a treasure buried and he tells him his address and he runs right. back home. But oftentimes before we discover the treasure that's buried in our own home, in our own community, in our own, you know, right. Hasidus, we're out there looking, you know, for other things. And, and there are incredible therapies that are out there. Um, you were talking about IFS and attachment styles and uh, EMDR and psychedelics. And, and I mean, there's a whole world of therapies that's out there. Right. And oftentimes um, we kind of, you know, turn our back on whether it's Hasidus or Yiddishkeit because we feel like it has nothing to offer us. And then we find some other therapy that seems to give us relief or give us direction or help us with healing. Uh, and then I hope that people will, you know, take a second look at our tradition and realize that it's an incredible wellspring. And I'm not saying that, you know, Hasidus can heal all things. Again, I'm not a mashpia, and people have asked this question. Does Tanya have the answer to every question and so on? And Tanya certainly does have the answer, like Torah has the answer to every question, and Tanya has the, you know, the remedy for uh, any and every ailment and so on. Sometimes you need the right person to help you discover it. But certainly these therapies uh, are incredibly powerful well, and incredibly helpful. Be... And then we go back and we realize, wow. You know, you go back and you, and you learn Tanya. If you're somebody who struggled with, uh, you know, depression, I'm not talking about clinical yeah. depression, right? And you go back to Tanya where the Alter Rebbe addresses it, you know, Perikhavov, it's like, this is unbelievable. Uh, it's like I've never I've, I've said this for years and years in Chitas, and I never realized how powerful you know what the Alter Rebbe was saying here. So there is incredible power there. Well, um, while you were talking, you reminded me of something I was going to say and forgot. Yeah. But in terms of finding something and reconnecting, so a lot of ways that book you gave by Shays Taub did that for me, where I found all these wonderful beauty within the 12 steps. And then he's like, here, look, look where it is within Judaism. So in that book, out of our understanding, he talks about the, um, the rebellious child, the story, the story of the rebellious child in the Torah, the Ben Sorer Umar. Yeah. And he quotes it in the original text. And it says something, when it's introducing the rebellious child, it says, and if there is a, 
a man or a boy who does not listen to the voice of his father and the voice of his mother. Yeah. So what Shay says is that it's telling you, I don't know where he got this, I don't know if it's his, his line or he's quoting it from someone else, is that it's telling you exactly how a rebellious child is formed. That he doesn't listen to the voice of his father and the voice of his mother because they're two separate voices, they're two distinct right. voices. If they're one voice, then the rebellious child never happens. So, one of the many ways that uh, the parents, we, we create the environment for, uh, we for create healthy the, children. Yeah, and when they're not, yeah. a dysfunctional relationship will produce dysfunctional children, a healthy relationship will produce. Healthy children. And yeah. Again, and for to have a, yeah. a healthy relationship, you have to have healthy individuals as well. So right. It's like it's it's like the importance of. Uh, and I see you have a book downstairs about power versus power versus force. Power versus force. Okay. And 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 uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Oliver Shalom talks about you know the difference between you know power and influence. You know the office of the right. king who has power and and the office of the prophet who has influence. He doesn't have any power, but he has this incredible influence and he talks about the importance and the Rebbe certainly talked about this not to uh, exercise power over children and especially in areas of, of Yiddishkeit um, and generally that expresses itself in uh, you know you have to you better versus the idea of influence which predominantly influence is setting the right example don't lecture yeah. your children about davening or saying their brachas um there's a story, a parable, or whatever, yeah. about a um, some king who comes to, or a parth, let's say, right, who comes to a rabbi in the city, and he's talking about, you know, how powerful he is. So the rabbi says, actually, this way is uh, more powerful. He says, if you give, if you if you give my people a pass for anything going wrong, I'll prove it to you. So it was the Passover of Pesach. So he said, I want you to go home, someone, and bring me a piece of bread. Someone, please, I'm asking you like, to bring me a piece of, uh, piece of hummus. And for hours, people are searching and searching and searching and searching, and they come back with nothing. They say, Rabbi, I know you want us to bring. It's obviously important the parts is here, but I don't have anything. We can't. We've turned over the whole city. We can't find one piece of bread. So he says, okay, now I want you to go back and bring any contraband, anything illegal, <laughs> anything they have illegal in the city, right? Go back and bring it, right? And obviously, he has a pass from the parts, so no one's going to get in trouble for this. And all, everything starts coming, right? The fake IDs, whatever it is, right? In a second. <laughs> All these things that are coming out. He says, You see, you have power. Right. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, that the story is Rabbi Levi Yitzchak oh, yeah. of Bradichud. Yeah, okay. he, he took his shamas on Erev Pesach and he sent him to the market to go get chametz. And the shamas looked at him like, What are you talking about? He says, I'm telling you, go and find me chametz. And he, of course, he went out and he couldn't find any chametz no matter how much he offered. <laughs> and then he said to him, Okay, go out and get me uh, the illegal tobacco or whatever oh, it right. was. And again, he looked at Rabbi Levi, like, <laughs> Levi Yitzchak like, Anyway, he ran, and he was able to find it very, very quickly. And and Levi Yitzchak, oh, okay, no, he looked up and he said to Hashem, "Look okay, at this! Yes, you have, you. you know, the czar has police standing <laughs> on every street corner, you know, and this drug is illegal. And in thirty seconds, my shamus can buy some. You, uh, thousands of years ago, you gave this prohibition about not eating chametz, and you have no police standing on the streets, and yet I can't find any chametz. Oh, right. So he used that as a right. okay, as a know, good." Uh, yeah, making. but it's a difference between, like you said, power and influence. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So we have to try and be the right influence for our children. 
And, and that goes back to what we were talking about before, is because, uh, you know, many of us parents are lecturing our children about how they need to get healthy or, or the work that they need to do or the things that they need to fix. And uh, that's trying to use power and it doesn't work. Uh, right. And the children don't hear it. It's trying to use power and oftentimes you know, it's trying to avoid. Trying to avoid our, our own. Work. But if, if we will set the proper example, um, whether it's in areas of Yiddishkeit or getting healthier, then immediately we will influence our, our children. I remember speaking to a parent who had a child and um, very addicted to drugs. And they're telling me, like, I have to convince my children to go to, to, like, to get into rehab. Can you help me convince my children to get into rehab? And this individual happened not to be very physically healthy. So I said, and I, like, are you taking care of yourself? I said, no, I can't. I have to, you know. <laughs> whatever kids, worry about this worry about kids, the kids. kids everything else so I said okay so you're telling them to do something that's different than you're doing maybe if you prioritize your own healing and you show them that I'm going to put this first despite all the reasons that I may have to avoid it there's my kid who's sick there's someone else but at the end of the day is our own healing our responsibility or not and if it is in this case was physical healing right which probably is also spiritual healing like the uh, I think the Fried Kerber says Right, the small hole in the body a is a big hole in the, the body, soul. Yeah. A little hole, yeah, small hole in the body is a big hole in the soul. So there was a there was a small hole in the body in this case, for sure. And um, I encouraged him a few times. I said, you know, check yourself in to doctors, go for whatever it is, whatever you need to heal yourself physically, and then the message will be sent that we prioritize our own healing. We take care of the healing that we need but as long as you're telling them to do something that you're not doing like what should they follow what you say and not what you do that doesn't uh yeah i feel like that's one of the most important things as as uh as as parents as parents in chinuch and educating our children right you know yeah i mean this goes beyond i guess that it's symbolic this idea of kicking a kid out of uh of yeshiva you know like right. this that's, well, that's a whole. That, that would be opening a Pandora's box. Yeah, but, but it's the same idea. It's but the I think same we've concept. made a lot of progress from there as well. Um, I mean, in fact, be... I ended up in Montreal Yeshiva. Yeah. Because I got, I was in Yeshiva in Miami and I got kicked out, and um, I called to come back to Montreal, and Rabbi Wenger said, "I'll take responsibility. <laughs> like, I'll get you right. back in." I said, "Sorry," <laughs> but he actually, what he said to me is, "I'll make sure you get in." Yeah. But. Being that I hadn't followed the rules of what we're supposed to do over the summer, so he said, "I want you to try a couple other schools, but you have a place here." So I guess in some way our relationship formed. So I, I ended up not going that year to not going back that year to Montreal, but then I went back the next year. And there's definitely a fondness that I have for um, for the yeshiva, yeah, and they had reasons reason. on many occasions to. Listen, I remember to kick my, me out. I remember my father, and it was one year that I was in in Montreal. And, you know, one of the boys was basically completely checked out and we know you know back then the worst crime in the world was watching movies in your right. room or going to the movies you know or talking to girls but but he was doing those things and i remember at a certain point i was sitting with my father we were talking and i said well, why do you keep this boy in yeshiva i mean because i i guess i wasn't uh, exposing him to my father but it was understood that my father yeah. knew what he was up to and i said well why do you keep him in yeshiva so my father said listen my policy is that so long as he is not poisoning the environment around him, right? In other words, taking other students with him or, you know, generating... He said, as long as he's not poisoning the environment around him, I will keep him in yeshiva. Because at least if I keep him here, 
there will be some benefit. Maybe he'll, uh, you know, grab a shachris, or maybe maybe it's it's the benefit just knowing that it won't turn out to be worse. So, and I thought that that was a very sound, you know, policy. Whereas in other yeshivas, you know, if you weren't, you know, following, uh, right, if you weren't living up to the expectations, you were you were out. They caught right. you talking to a girl or or smoking a cigarette, you were out. And uh, even if you were keeping it to yourself and you weren't hurting anybody else, you know, they weren't thinking about the consequences of, of, of throwing somebody out on the street. And, right, even that one yeah. is subject to interpretation exactly right. when it's... So, but I think we have made progress there yeah, we, with that. I think where we made progress is that now there are schools that are options right. to go to. So kids right. there has don't to, need to go to a school that yeah, they would get kicked out. There have to be those schools be as well. Food. But I think also the mainstream, some of the mainstream schools are also a little bit more... Flexible, right. you know, or or reasonable. It's not like okay, you're out. Right. So what I was would, saying is that in many ways, our relationship was formed over that because Montreal. Yeah. I, when I came to Miami, I didn't last three weeks. I read a non-Jewish book. They kicked me out of school. Right. So I read a non-Jewish book. That's why I said that is subject to interpretation. I read a non-Jewish book, and I um, loaned it to a friend. Ah. Okay. So then they said I'm a sinner who's making others sin. Ooh. Okay. The guy had me in a headlock to take the book from me. Right. No, so, um, or maybe you didn't I'm realize that's why you didn't think it was something so terrible, so you shared it. You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, but that is that is definitely how we met on that on that level. Right. And so I'm saying another yeshiva did kick me out. Montreal didn't. So not there were other kids who did get kicked out. There were things that I did that they knew about that other kids had gotten kicked out for. But for whatever reason, you know the. So in other words, our our relationship is many, many things. Right, but one of them is... I think one of the most important things is the idea of reaching out and understanding that, you know, today there are communities that are out there that will give you the support that you need and give you the strength that you need. And as you talked about before, the importance of, you know, getting over that shame, um, Getting over that shame, and that's a very big part of, uh, I think, what both of us have been doing, is trying to make ourselves available to help others. And um, what I've been talking about, you know, we we certainly evolve and so on. But but something that I've been repeating, I, I catch myself repeating it over and over and over again. And I've shared it with you, and mm. I've read, you know, probably some of the same books that you've read. But this idea that whatever remains unresolved in our own lives. We will be passing it along to our children. Unfortunately. And unfortunately, but fortunately, we've decided not to do that. And so we're making changes. And I think that there's a whole movement and a whole community of people that are not satisfied with doing that. And I think as a community, we are changing and evolving. And that becomes very, very, very uh, powerful. So, so the message to everyone that's listening is to encourage them to uh, find that willingness. Yeah, I wish I wish this could be... I, I think we should dive in a little bit and then we can kind of wrap up this discussion yeah. on what it actually means when we say that something unresolved in us is going to be passed on the children. So I shared it in an earlier podcast. I wrote... The podcast was called Our Most Sacred Responsibility. I shared it with just, just... It was me and Ryan were talking and uh, the I, I shared an example there I shared a couple of examples, but the one example which I'll share now was of a knowing several generations of a, a family where the um, 
the oldest, right? The grandmother, the suicide, grandmother, daughter, granddaughter, right? So the grandmother was forced to go to work at a very young age. But the her mother never appreciated the fact that, you know, at 11 years old, 12 years old, she was out there having to support the family. So she had this resentment towards her mother of, I worked my tail off and you didn't appreciate it. And I don't know how far it goes because I don't know. And then changed one variable in the relationship with her daughter where she didn't have to work, actually go get a job young, but maybe she had to parent one of the other kids young, right? So it's like, okay. Because her mother was out working. Maybe. Whatever it was. Yeah. But she, meaning she was forced, the, the successively all three generations were forced at a very young age to adult and to take on responsibility. But in one case, it was the responsibility of financial responsibility for the house, going at a job. In another case, it was responsibility of taking care of the younger siblings, but real responsibility for the younger siblings. You know, at 12 years old, putting the six-year-old to sleep. You know, how come they're not at bedtime? You know, like that, like motherly responsibility. And then the next generation, it was responsibility for oneself, right? Like, okay, you have to take care of living on, them, living on their own and stuff like that. And what was so interesting to me in seeing this is in each case, one variable changed, which was you know, working or not working or, you know, for, for money, for what you're taking care of others, just taking care of yourself, one variable changed. And in each one, it led to the mother putting the child to work in very extreme ways, like adulting at a very young age, but not appreciating it in their child. And then the child developing a resentment back towards their mother that they never, my mother, I worked so hard and my mother didn't even appreciate me. So each one feels the same way. And then watching this and just knowing with 100% certainty that this youngest one, right, who doesn't have a child yet, if she doesn't work out her resentment to her mother for this, then she will do it to her child. She'll change a variable, force her to grow up at a very young age, not appreciate her because it wasn't as hard as her life was, and the child will feel the exact same way. Unappreciated, over, <laughs> overworked, and underpaid. But the Torah says yeah. it also, by the no, way. It. When the Torah talks about uh, the consequences of sin and how it passes along from generation to generation. Yeah, but it only says if the children don't interrupt that cycle, that behavior. How do they In other words, it's almost as if prophetically the Torah is saying that if we don't interrupt it, it's going to continue. The mistakes of our parents yes. will then show up in the next generation and it won't be interrupted until we disrupt it. It's almost as if the Torah is saying yes, yes. That, right? What does it say? What does it say? Um, um, so, so something positive goes on, you know, there for a thousand generations, but the consequences of, of the sin and the retribution goes three generations or four generations, but the exception to that is only if the children don't do tshuva. Right, if they don't repeat right. the behavior of their parents, right. but it's almost 100%. like, you know, it's like a, a, a yeah, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, right? yeah. There was there's so many. There was someone you know, who beating himself up for years about making um, significant uh, financial mistakes, and then seeing their children the same thing, like never having healed that guilt and the shame over. That thing and how their child, almost like a, a karma, like they're destined. They've but, been. But to me, it's fascinating, though, because there are things, you know, again, speaking about my own life, but there are things that I have dealt with that I've worked on in my own life that my children would have nothing. They don't, 
they don't even know about it. Right. And I start to see changes in them. And I'm like, how could this be happening? They don't even know. Right. And, and they probably don't even realize, you know, why these things are changing for them. But I'm telling you that I see it. Yeah. I can't explain it, but I see it. It's like what you're talking about your son, right? Your son can, if, if the energy between you and your wife is not right, he starts acting out. 100%. How did he know? He didn't get a memo. Somehow he knows. So I know. Um, not because of anything he heard. There's, no, a, the there's most... a field of energy that that um, our children. It's are like the woman says: by. the 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 playground yeah. of the children yeah. is the is the space between okay. the parents. Recently, I did some work, and uh, <laughs> recently I did some very serious work on a, on a certain issue, and uh, one of my children called me two or three days later and blew my mind. Like they came into this awareness as if out of nowhere and something that he had been struggling with for a very very long time and i said this is the gift yeah this is the gift this is a gift it is the blessing and the curse right right there it is yeah i'll say one more thing yeah. and then we'll wrap up so i made a comment about disney before and i know the way people um like about disney movies that there's yes. a lot in disney movies but as kids we watch a disney movie we, we didn't understand we didn't it. understand they watch depth, it as adult and there's like real depth, real depth yeah. so i was comparing it to yeah which i know you're supposed to say something when you do it. Yeah, yeah so there was uh, with many many distinctions when yeah. i was saying it, i was thinking about which disney movie i'm referring to so in which one might have like a profound lesson so lion king you have what does scar do right scar is like the um right, the, the uncle of the king right so you have the king mufasa kid i forget his name simba and then the the uncle is Scar. The evil uncle. The evil uncle. So he's like the Yetzirah. So what does he do? He tempts him into, you know, going into the gorge over there. And then his father gets stampeded and killed. And then what does he say? It's your fault. Right? That's the, That's the guilt. Right? <laughs> right. First he tempts him to come. We're going to see something. I forget exactly what they're going to see. He starts a stampede of the cows or whatever it was. Right. They come running out. I mean, the buffalo or the wildebeest. Right. Come running, running down. The father tries to save the kid. He gets killed. And then he says, oh, look, you killed your father. So because of the guilt, he basically banishes himself to exile. That, right. That's why he doesn't go back. Right, that's why he go back. And then eventually here's a calling. Like, you're okay. You're okay. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And then so who pays the price? Everyone. Right. All of his people are paying the price the whole of his guilt. The whole kingdom is paying yeah. the price of his guilt. Right. And shame. So the, the father was kind of... Not replaceable. He was meant to replace the father, right? If it was not now, it was later. Like, right. that was his King destiny. He was getting older already at exactly. some point. Right. That was his destiny. He was going to be there, and everything would have been fine, if not for the guilt. And the guilt, like, banished him to, um, to exile. And then in overcoming that guilt and overcoming that shame, he was able to reclaim his status as king and then bring back healing and light and plenty to the... Uh, to, I think the movie ends everyone. where everything blossoms and prospers. Because he comes back and, home. Right, he comes back right? home. And if it, there's one scene in it yeah. where um, he has a vision of his father and he's saying, remember who you are, remember who you right. are. You know, like don't let this guilt, don't, don't define yourself by this, by this one thing. And in some cases, in that case, it wasn't his fault, it was his uncle's fault, fine, whatever. But the, this, the feeling is the same. The feeling is one of guilt that made him run away and play with monkeys and pigs and whatever else, right? Right, just fooling around, and sometimes he's supposed to be royalty. But he's right; he's supposed to, you know, step into his role. And it was the guilt and shame that was uh, that was holding him back. So may this podcast, this discussion, help to abolish any of the things that are keeping us out Amen. in the fields and the kingdom from flourishing, you, so we can all come back home. 
in other words, we, we, what we say to ourselves and what we share with others is that message that he heard from his father, right? There, you, there's too much worthiness and godliness and holiness and purity inside of us to allow the shame and guilt to eclipse it. Rabba Munasacha. That's it. In other words, every one of us is uh, right. Is royalty, right? So, right. All of us have a very. We uh, gotta find we and, and I'm not uh, you know to find the courage to confront your your shame is sometimes seems to be unsurmountable. Insurmountable, yeah. Insurmountable, insurmountable yeah. right? But uh, but that's the way it always is. When you're looking at it, you know, when you look at that mountain as as it's coming up, you're thinking, "There's no way I'm going to climb that thing." Right, but eventually, when you're looking in hindsight, once you've once you've made it to the peak and you look back, it wasn't as difficult. I know you know what I tell people as you had anticipated. <laughs> now, Jay, I say, imagine like black, black, black water. So you look at it, you think it goes on forever. If you try to dip your toe in, you will not have stepped in enough to know that the bottom is not so far. But as soon as you step in, as you find out, it's like three inches deep. It looks like it's forever, right. but it doesn't. You go in. And it's like, oh, wow, it's released. Like, well, right, once now you the, go... right now the work is going to be three minutes. Okay, <laughs> right. that's my work. <laughs> it's not black water. That's a different... <laughs> right, Nice, exactly. crisp, clean water. Exactly. So, meaning the mountain suggests that there is like this massive thing in front of us. This little, it's a, it's a several inch pool, but it's black. So it looks like it goes forever. And, and find, find the community of people who are, yeah. who are like-minded. You know, uh, thank God we have little pockets of them. Pretty much everywhere. Yes. So uh, go there. That's that's a good start. Go there. Who is it who said that uh, this whole life is a process of us walking each other home? So yes, there are many people trying to walk yeah. home and are uh, willing and able to walk others who are willing to. They certainly are as well. And I had I had such a cool experience recently where um, someone who reached out to me years ago was in. I, I can't tell you if he was suicidal or not, but I can tell you that when I got off the phone with him, I immediately called someone in the city and I said, can you go and meet with him because I'm concerned about him? And I put them together. That's where, like our first real phone call, that's where he was. And uh, in the last few weeks, he had the opportunity to help me with something, like a healing thing. Like he was able to, to help me overcome something. And it was such a cool feeling to see how, like I told it to him. You know, he said, thank you so much. You know, you've been such an important part of my life. And I said, well, look how it repays because I needed something and he gave me. And he was there for you. He was the medicine. Now imagine was, what that does for yeah. him. The feeling that, uh, you know, once upon a time he was so desperate and so helpless that he didn't think anybody could, could help him. He was right. lost. And now he can be there for you. Right. Well, at this point he knows. He's helping right. many people. God bless. So he right. knows. It wasn't that, right. it wasn't that for him. But for, it was like it was a repayment back to me, right. you know. It was the guy who gave a loan to, and many years later, oh, by the way, I have, <laughs> I have some. So who did Incredible. you give it to? You gave it back to yourself. Let's get working. But it's fun. Well, Ellie will continue to work. Thank yeah. you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for being. Uh, God willing, more will follow. <laughs> yes. But thank you, Ty well. Tyler. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure. Beautiful. Likewise. Yeah. Now I know what the loft is. There we are. Yeah. No, no, I've seen, I've watched some of the podcasts, but I didn't right. know where it was happening. And you've been here, sure. but you've never been right. upstairs. Right, I've never been up space. here. Okay, every, every space has its... Right. Uh, every space has its space. Yeah, it has its, beautiful, beautiful, Ellie. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah.